Let's not do anything rash here. I mean, uh, are you sure she's worth all this? I mean, she never does stop talking. She never shuts up. I noticed. What is it then, huh? It's the map. She's my friend. Golly gee, a single tear rolls down my cheek. Welcome to the Mad Max Minute Presents Waterworld H2O Minutes at a Time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minutes 147 and 148, which begin with the Deacon and his cronies seeing the Mariner, and end with the Mariner saying that Enola is his friend. As we kick off this episode, the Mariner is striding across the deck towards the bridge, while the deacon is finishing off his thought from last week. He promised his smoker's results, and he will get those results even if he has to cut them off of Enola's back. The group of them up there on the bridge, they turn and they see that this lone smoker is walking across the deck. He's got a jacket, some goggles, holding the shotgun. He's got a pistol stuffed in his belt. He's just a lone dude where everybody else has gone down below to get rowing. Yeah, I really like that. You can see him walking across the deck way before the group up on the bridge sees him. I really like that detail. He doesn't just pop out of nowhere. And the deacon has no idea who this guy is because the deacon doesn't really learn the names of his smokers. They just are his crew. Yeah, they're just masses. And the ledger guy thinks, oh, is that one of the spare rowers? They probably have teams of rowers, like Team A and Team B. Yeah. Team B rests while Team A works, blah, 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 blah. Right. Which makes a lot of sense and also makes me wonder why there aren't more people milling around. Like, okay, I don't have to go down there for another half an hour, so I'm going to stay up here for one, stay out of the way. Mm -hmm. For two, rest, because you're going to have to do hard work for half an hour. <laughs> I'm sure they just wanted to vacate the deck because that seemed to be what their deacon wanted. Yes, very much so. It also set the stage for the conversation that we just finished with the bigwigs, that it was an interesting transition from a big mass meeting to a small private meeting. To do that, we had to get rid of everybody. Exactly. Clear the deck. Make it easier for the mariner to carry on with the deacon in this way. Yeah, so they have a whole conversation, and the deacon has a microphone that he is using the Mariner doesn't. He's not even speaking up. Yeah, it's always very convenient how people can hear each other across vast distances in movies like this. Uh-huh, which I feel like is a particular thing that Kevin Costner does. Do you remember in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves? Yes. There's this scene <laughs> where the Sheriff of Nottingham is screaming up at Robin, saying that he's going to capture him and cut out his heart with a spoon. And Robin is at the top of this very tall tower after... Errol flinning his way up there, and Robin, without shouting, looking down at the sheriff, just says, so it begins. Yes, I remember that scene specifically. <laughs> I feel like it's like a vocal trait of Kevin Costner. <laughs> no matter where he is, no matter what is happening around him, if he speaks in a normal tone, you can hear him. I mean, he does speak very clearly, so that is something in his favor. I really appreciate how... The Mariner is walking across the deck. The Deacon challenges him, 
and the Mariner takes that opportunity to pull the goggles off of his face. Nord and Deacon have been in very close proximity with the Mariner, and he is a significant character in their recent memory, so revealing his face like this, I believe that they would recognize him. And the Nord actually laughs to himself as he says, huh, it's him. And then you've got Enola who confirms, yes, that is the Mariner. Yeah, the Deacon doesn't really seem to recognize him independently. Mm -hmm. Let's see, when did he see him face to face? It was... Before they burned the Trimoran. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Okay, so he really did get a very good look at him. He really should have recognized him at the same time the Nord and Enola did, but he doesn't really seem to. Is he just that dismissive of other people? He doesn't hold faces in his head? Oh, I wholeheartedly believe that. Yeah. If he views someone as below him, whether that's an atoller or a smoker crew member or an ichthy freak, if he doesn't respect them in some way, there's no way he's committing their face to memory. Right. And that's what underlings are for. Exactly. I mean, the Nord remembers him, so why does the Deacon need to remember him? Yeah. Now, Enola does add, after saying it is him, she says, you guys are in so much trouble. And if the words that she spoke back in episode 72 are to be believed, they need to be especially worried because the Mariner can hide in the shadow of a noonday sun, so they could be looking at him, and then in the blink of an eye, he's gone. He's gone. Yeah, which is dumb. <laughs> <laughs> Dub. I do really like this line. As much as I don't like Enola, I do like this line. It's the cheeky brashness that we have come to expect from Enola. It's also true, unlike the last time she spoke, <laughs> that she was just full of crap. Uh, this one is true, and we know the Mariner enough to know that it's true. Mm -hmm. He's already killed his way up to the deck. And so there's no reason why he wouldn't be willing to continue his murderous spree, which is something we're going to see more so in next week's episode, but we'll get there. Yeah, they gotta talk it out first. Exactly. Now the Deacon, expressing his recognition of the Mariner, says, Well, I'll be damned, it's the gentleman Guppy. He's like a turd that won't flush. Which delights me because it means that the deacon at least enjoys a flushing toilet. I thought about that too. And at first I was like, that must just be a carryover saying that they don't really know what it means. But I'm like, well, a flushing toilet really isn't that complicated. It doesn't require electricity. It's physics. And it doesn't even require clean water. You can do it with salt water. Like, that's fine too. Mm -hmm. Hell on your pipes to do it with salt water. But if you've got a good porcelain toilet. Yeah. Which... I'm sure the deacon has a porcelain toilet. Everyone else probably has buckets that they just slough out the side of the ship, which just has so much implication for the water around the Ds. But then again, we also had an atoll where they had a poop bog. There's no way that that subject isn't going to be gross. So why not just have a poop bog so that you can grow real food? Exactly. The mariner is down on the deck. He points up at the bridge and says, I want the girl. From his vantage point, we're looking up at the bridge, and the deacon is the first one to respond. But in the book, Nord leans into the deacon and gives him an alternative. The Nord whispered harshly to the deacon, cut her throat, right in front of him. Let the blood flow down on deck at his feet. That's what they both deserve. That made the deacon smile. What a lovely notion. No wonder he kept the Nord around. But then reality set in, and he told his second-in-command, almost sadly, we just can't, not till we find out where dry land is. 
You said it yourself, the Nord said, exasperated. Kill her and skin her, and you'll have your damn map. The child was whimpering. She was holding on to the dock's stained off-white trousers. Apparently the dock was as close to a sympathetic figure as she could find. No, 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 the deacon said. She's become a symbol to my congregation. You don't butcher a religious artifact, I'm afraid. He patted the Nord's shoulder. I did like it in theory, though. I definitely see why that scene wasn't in the movie. It's a little brutal. It is. But I like what it tells us about the Nord. First of all, answers the question, why the heck he's there? He started out the movie being a useful sword, but then once he got back to the smokers, he didn't do anything. So that does indicate why the deacon keeps him around. He's an idea man. Mm -hmm. He is a brutal idea man, but he's also not wrong. If all you need is the map on her back, why keep her alive? Which the deacon's not wrong about either. And why not use her against the mariner and just slit her throat right there? That's the sort of brutality that you don't see in movies, but that feels more common sense. Like, why monologue about something when you can just do it? Yeah. In a movie, you've got to give your hero and your villain time to trade barbs back and forth. If this was a real-world situation, yeah, they would have killed her hours ago. Reminds me of The Red Wedding, where most people have been killed, and there is a stop moment, and a couple lines of dialogue, and then just more throat slitting. Mm -hmm. Because, okay, we're done throat slitting, everybody, throat slit. There's no thinking about it. There is, if you do that, I'm going to do this. They do that, so I do this. And it's just... Like, plain and simple, and I did what I said I was going to do. And people were shocked by it. Yes, they were. People did not expect it to go that way, because books can be brutal like that in yeah. ways that TV shows and movies just aren't. And I enjoyed that shock. Like, oh, they actually did it. Mm -hmm. They didn't dance around the point. They just did it. <laughs> as far as movie Deacon is concerned... After hearing the Mariner demand the return of Enola, he says, You know, I thought you were stupid, friend, but I underestimated you. You are a total freaking retard. And it's amazing to me, looking back at 90s media, how prevalent that word was. How often it was just thrown around casually. That retard was a socially acceptable insult, and I'm really glad that it has fallen out of common use. Yeah, me too. This feels really weird. This insult of his, I was shocked by it. Because that word has such a hard edge to it. Yeah. In my personal experience, I was in elementary school before I met someone who had a family member who was mentally retarded. Yeah. And before I met that person and became friends with them, I didn't see an issue with the use of that word. But then once my life was touched by someone who lived with that condition, then I realized, okay, you can't just bandy that around as an insult because you're disparaging an entire group of people who have no choice but to be that way. And they're not lesser for it. They're just different for it. Yeah. So my brother was mentally retarded. And especially in the 90s, especially in this era that this movie came out, I felt like I was allowed to use that word because I had a family member 
who was mentally retarded, but it was not okay for other people to use that word. Mm -hmm. And that sentiment stuck with me for a while until one day it clicked. I'm like, you know what? No, not at all. Yeah. Because you realized that you were using it in such a way to insult someone by comparing them to someone that you loved. Yes. Once it reaches you, once it clicks in your head, you realize that it's just not good to say. Right. And I'm really glad that most people have realized that that's not okay and they shouldn't do it anymore. A word that I think about a lot that needs to follow the same path is moron. Really? Because the word moron came about back in the day was a medical term for people who had a certain level of IQ. Same as idiot. That's where those words came from. And then they morphed into not being specific to a category of IQ, but to describing someone in a derisive manner who is less than you in some way, or you are deeming less than you in some way. So I think that eventually words like moron and idiot are going to follow the same path. I don't necessarily subscribe to the idea that IQ is a real thing. The idea of IQ reeks of eugenics to me. Oh, yes. (laughs) So I try and avoid it. But I think it's important that people move away from saying, oh, that person is a moron and focuses more on, oh, that person's decision or action was moronic. Not so that that person is wholly defined by that word, but that decision or action that person has made can be described in that way. Absolutely. I'm totally on board with that. People are not defined by one action. People are defined by their actions, yes, but as a lifetime of actions. That's what defines people, not one individual action. So if they make one stupid decision, it was the decision that was stupid, not the person. If you're going to insult someone, be creative and be specific (laughs) and don't be wholly disparaging to who they are as a human being. Yes. That's the thing about insults thrown around by children. You know, those insults are not creative. They're not constructive. They are surface level and boring. Right. As we grow older and more intelligent, more complex and more sophisticated, our insults that we throw around should follow suit. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) And the Deacon's insults, specifically this one, has not followed suit. I would actually dare say that his other insults kind of have followed suit, like have become a little bit more sophisticated and creative. Specifically, what I mean is what the deacon calls the mariner is different every time. Yeah. I particularly like Gentleman Guppy. That one is particularly good. It's also not insulting to the man, just the specific thing about the man that the deacon doesn't like. Yeah. Insisting that he is nothing more than a fish wearing clothing play acting at being human. Yes. It's much better than calling him that freaking retard right. phrase, which does not sit well. No, it's also... It has not aged well. It's also not a good insult. What he's saying is, I thought you were stupid, but it turns out you're extra stupid. Yeah. And that's just not... <laughs> you're double plus stupid to infinity plus one. Right. That's just <laughs> not a good insult. Mm-hmm. Something better would have said... I know you're just a fish man, but I didn't think you were this stupid. Something like that. It's okay to bring in something insulting, because that's what he's doing. 
to compare his physical condition of being an ichthosapien with his intelligence. It's okay to bring those together and call him stupid. Yeah. Building off of that idea, I knew you were a fish man, but I didn't know you had the brains of a jellyfish, which everybody knows jellyfish don't have brains. Right. <laughs> it just could have been a lot more creative. The mariner doesn't answer the insult so much as clarifies his demands. He wants the girl. That's all. I'm going to duck into the book because he actually has a bit more to this demand. From below came the fishman's demand. Well, give me the girl. Copy the map off her back first. I don't care. But just set us adrift and we'll call it even. Even, he says, the deacon said softly to himself more than anyone. Then he called down to the fishman. I always thought you were stupid, my fine fishy friend. But I underestimated you. You're a complete imbecile. You could give my smokers idiocy lessons. Okay, that is a little bit more creative. I like that. <laughs> Imbecile is another one of those words like moron and idiot that was originally used to classify a level of intelligence. But yeah, I like that better. I especially like the addition of you could teach my smokers how to be more idiotic. Right, because we already know what he thinks about his smokers. So I do like that one a lot better. And it is still, like, super insulting. It is insulting his intelligence. And the deacon continues, saying, What on this screwed-up earth makes you think you're going to get her? And it's at this point that the mariner pulls a flare from his belt and he holds it up for everybody to see. And the folks on the bridge, they seem to recognize initially what this is. They're all squirming a bit. And as the mariner holds up the flare, he asks them, if they know what it is, and he clarifies that if he drops it, because he is standing next to the opening that leads down to the fuel reserves. Yep, very specifically. That they will burn. And the doctor is very quick to specify everyone I will burn. I love his tone. He's pointing out something obvious. It's very defeated and sarcastic. It is so wonderful. It's one of the moments in these two minutes that really tickled me made me smile the deacon seems a bit flustered because he says no wait 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 let's not do anything rash here yeah he lost control of the conversation for a moment and yeah that flustered him and he's trying to get control back which i think he does very effectively it doesn't matter in the end in the end he didn't have control at all but he has the appearance the feel of control yeah before the mariner pulled out that flare deacon was up on the bridge he had the Nord next to him with a gun pointed at the Mariner. There are other smokers on the bridge with guns pointed at the Mariner. By all means, the Mariner was outgunned, and he was not going to win this situation. But the ability to blow up the Ds, on one hand, is insignificant compared to the power of the Force, but I digress, <laughs> has shifted the power dynamic. The Deacon realizes that with the flick of a wrist... Everything that he has built up over his entire lifetime can be destroyed. So you're right. He has lost a bit of power in this situation. He rallies pretty quickly. Yeah. We do see him falter, but then he immediately finds an angle. Let's not do anything rash here. Are you sure she's even worth it? She never shuts up. <laughs> this moment makes me laugh because the Mariner simply says, I noticed. Right. He's not denying it. And that's a great point about being friends, is that you don't have to like everything about somebody to be their friend. Mm -hmm. It's okay to think that something they do is annoying 
And you can still be friends and you can still put yourself out there and sacrifice yourself, put yourself in danger to help that person. Just because you find her annoying doesn't mean she's not your friend and you're not going to go save her. So a nice little lesson there about friendship. And the deacon in response to the mariner says, what is it then? It's the map. And the mariner specifies, she's my friend. There's a bit to unpack here. (laughs) (laughs) I have to wonder at what point the mariner made the switch from you're an annoying hanger on to she's my friend. Where did that happen along the way? I'm not sure that I can tell you exactly when it happened, but I can tell you when we saw after the flip, when he taught her to swim. That was definitely post-friendship. Now, let me remember back what happened right before that. It was the scene at night, Enola was asleep, and Helen approached the Mariner, and they had a conversation. And Helen gave him the drawing. Helen gave him the drawing. I think in that scene, the Mariner learned that he and Enola are not so different, that Enola already recognizes that and already recognizes a kinship with him. So maybe it was that moment where he realized, oh, I have a kinship back. Mm -hmm. Him calling Enola his friend recontextualizes the barter outpost scene for me. Because in the movie, it's never specified that the barter outpost is a slaver outpost. Helen does say, you were going to sell us back there in the scene after the smoker ambush. Mm -hmm. But if the mariner was bringing Helen and Enola to that barter outpost to get rid of them, but he was at a point where he already considered Enola a friend of his, it might have been that he wasn't so much looking to sell them just for material gain. It could have been that he was trying to offload them onto a situation where they won't overtax the supplies that he has on the Trimoran, because the Trimoran was essentially built to house one person, and increasing the human cargo from one to three, put a strain on his resources. So he could have brought them to the outpost with the intention to get rid of them as a way to make sure that they were better taken care of. So if you love them, you gotta let them go sort of thing? Exactly. That is an interesting idea. It occurred to me that he had been going to that outpost probably for a couple of days. And it just so happened that by the time they got there, he had changed his mind. You're right. He never admits that he was going to sell them. Mm-mm. He doesn't. He deflects Helen's accusation by saying she lied about the tattoo. Right. And in his defense about not copping to, yeah, I was originally, but then I changed my mind to sort of situation, is that that sort of scenario happens a lot. Like, oh, I was dating you on a bet. But then I got to know you, and I really like you, and I I want to actually date you. That never works. That never is okay with the other party. That always upsets them. The whole part about, oh, but I changed my mind once I got to know you, that part never really lands. It's always about, I dated you on a bet. I was paid to do this. All of those scenarios are all over rom-coms. And the climax of those movies is that they have to prove themselves all over again. They have to do some sort of grand gesture to prove, hey, no, I really do like you. And that's exactly what's happening here. He has to prove that they are friends. 
thinking more about that barter outpost scene, his justification for them going there was that they need resin to make repairs. Everything he has said about the barter outpost makes it seem routine and not special, and it was just Helen and us reading from the book and hearing additional descriptions about the barter outpost as to what exactly it was that brought us to the idea that he was going to sell them to get rid of them. If you're just looking at the movie and just listening to what he said, them getting ambushed at the barter outpost was what was most wrong about that situation. Yes. So that really points me in the direction of the movie didn't want that to be part of that narrative. Mm -hmm. That he, at least at one point, wanted to sell them. I think they did not want that to be part of the story. Right. If the information is out there, people are going to find it. And they're going to change that narrative. There's a whole conversation out in the world about art once it leaves the hands of the artist. Right. Death of the author. Yes. And this is certainly a case of this movie is in our hands now. We get to interpret it and discuss it and pick it apart with our brains and our resources. And this is what we've learned and this is what we've decided. So... That's what is. Mm -hmm. It's also interesting to look back on how the Mariner reacted to Enola being taken and his boat being burned. Because him already considering her a friend when she was taken. In the theatrical cut, he's completely on board to save Enola from step number one. And so it's easy to see. Yes, he considers her a friend at that point. In the Ulysses cut, obviously, he has that scene where he tells Helen, hey, if your own kind is not willing to go to bat to save Enola, then why should I? And then it's him finding her drawings that reminds him she is worth protecting, and then he decides to go back and save her. So in the Ulysses cut, it could be argued that he does not consider her a friend until he ends up back at his ruined ship by himself, looks through drawings and whatnot, and then decides, you know what? She is my friend, and I'm going to go do this. Either that, or he mourns her kidnapping, but doesn't feel that he can do anything about it until he has that moment on his boat where he says, you know what, no, I can do something about this. If she can come from dry land as a little girl and do all of this stuff, then I, as the mariner, can do this for her. Yes. It's an interesting way to look back on it. It is, and the Ulysses cut leaves that more open for interpretation. The theatrical cut, I think it's pretty clear that the swimming lesson scene is friendship. Mm -hmm. But the Ulysses cut, with that no, I won't go save her scene, it kind of changes that timeline of when he actually starts to genuinely care for her. Yeah. He recognizes that she considers him a friend, but at that scene where he goes back to his trimary and he's like, you know what, I'm going to return that friendship. Yeah. And be her friend in return. The deacon is not impressed with this statement at all. He says, golly gee, a single <laughs> tear rolls down my cheek. I I enjoy that sarcasm a little bit, maybe a little too much. Because the Mariner is starting to veer into sappy territory, where I don't think Kevin Costner shines. <laughs> if this conversation were to continue down a sappy road... I don't think Kevin Costner would have performed that well. I mean, he barely says she's my friend with much feeling behind it. (laughs) So I appreciate that the Deacon kind of stops 
that sentimentality in its tracks. Yeah. It really is the best course for the abilities of the actors involved. With all that being said, we're going to wrap for this week. Come back next time. The Mariner will show the lengths he's willing to go in order to rescue Enola. All hell will break loose on the Ds, and Nord will try to use the Deacon Mobile to defeat his rival. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. Waterworld was written by Peter Rader and David Tui, directed by Kevin Reynolds, and presented by Universal Pictures. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute. And like us on Facebook by searching MadMaxMinute and join our Facebook listener group, MadMaxMinute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit Patreon.com slash MadMaxMinute. Thank you for joining us for Waterworld Episode 74. We'll see you next time.